Welcome to this edition of Surviving the Shitstorm with me, Kieran, the boy Bailey. I am very excited about this one. So I was chatting with uh, Kim Scott over on Twitter. I say chatting, I responded to one of her tweets and she demonstrated exactly what I expected of her. Just on the back of that one tweet, uh, she offered to do a Zoom Q&A to try and give us some advice, give us some help, some strategies for dealing with this situation. Uh, and I was massively touched by that. And happily, she agreed that we would be able to record it for the podcast. So I'm really stoked that we get to be able to share this with you. Kim is the author of Radical Candor, easily one of my favorite books of the last two years, and certainly one of the books I've gifted the most. I reckon I'm on my fourth edition right now, which always cheers an author up, I guess, to be fair. But the people who I've given it to and the people I've shared it with have absolutely taken value from it. And I'm absolutely 100% sure that you will do the same. So thanks to our sponsors and our partners, the guys at Vita Mojo, HGM, Tahola, all helping us to be able to put these things out for you. And thank you so much to Kim. I'm so excited to share this with you. Enjoy. So I'm the author of Radical Candor, Be a Kick-Ass Boss Without Losing Your Humanity. At least that's actually, that's the U.S. title. The British title is more polite. It's Be a Great Boss Without Losing Your Humanity. Uh, so, so the other things that I do, I started a company that helps people roll out the ideas in the book. So it's sort of an executive education company. And I'm co-conspirator with Second City, which is a comedy improv uh, group in Chicago in the U.S. and we've we've made an office comedy, a workplace comedy, to try to uh -huh. help teach people. It's a, it's a, it's not your grandfather's management training. It's uh, it's a new way to try to teach people how to put radical candor into practice. So that's that's what I do: improvising radical candor and radicalcandor.com. If you want to learn more, well, that sounds really cool. It was really, really fun. Yeah, really fun actually. What inspired you to do that with the, uh, certainly with the training arm, to kind of take it from the comedy approach? Yeah, so so I, I'm here in Silicon Valley. And so when I finished the book, I was talking to a, a venture capitalist. And of course, inevitably, we decided we must build an app to help people put the ideas in the Always. book. And, yeah, so we built one and it didn't really work. And we built a second one and it didn't really work. We built a third one and it didn't really work. And I was watching my daughter, who was eight at the time, perform in a play. And she was up on stage and I was filming her on my phone and she was singing the song from the 70s, Believe It or Not, It's Just Me. And I looked up from my phone and looked at my actual daughter on the actual stage and looked at the real world. And my eyes filled with tears and it just hit me with such a force that what Radical Candor is trying to do is it's trying to remind people to put their phones in their pocket, look each other in the eye, or at least over the video screen right now, and mm -hmm. have a real conversation. And an app was kind of a value subtracting round trip to that. So that company folded. We um, that was a failure. So we put that to bed. And but the talks and the workshops that were live, people were still enjoying doing. Mm -hmm. However, that's expensive, and right now, actually impossible. And so one of the things we wanted to do was we wanted to figure out how can we create an experience that will give people the emotional appeal of radical candor that will remind people, I mean, workplace conversations are the stuff of drama, uh, both humor and, and the opposite. And, and so we wanted to figure out a way to communicate these ideas to people that would help them put the ideas into practice. Because it's really easy for me, me to say, be radically candid. And what I mean by that is care personally and challenge directly at the same time. But it's really hard for you to do it. And so we really worked on thinking of new ways that we could explain these ideas and help people really put them into practice. So that's why we made the movie. That's why we made the perfect sense, doesn't it? sitcom. Yeah, it was kind of cool. It turns out that that video is a really, it's a high fidelity, you know, high drama way to explain the ideas and to show mm -hmm. what it looks like when you get it right, but also what it looks like when you get it wrong. I mean, all the, all the humor comes in 
failure, <laughs> not in success, actually. And so that was fun. And it was also really fun to develop. We, we built kind of a cheat sheet and a, a, a playbook. So a set of improv exercises you can do to put the ideas into practice. So one of the first things we, we do is we suggest you solicit feedback. Don't dish it out before you prove that you can take it. And so we tell people a lot of things in that. One of them is listen with the intent to understand, not to respond, which is actually uh, a quote uh, that I, I didn't come up with that. But the, the problem there is people don't really know how to do it. Like it sounds good, listen with the intent to understand, but how do you actually do that? How do you actually take Stephen Covey's idea and put it into practice? And so it turns out that's what improv does. So we came up with some exercises, some ways to, to play uh, with these ideas because we practice. If you're going to learn to play soccer, you do drills. If you're going to learn to play the piano, you do scales. But where is our practice for being human? Where is our practice for having real conversations? And I searched high and low. I worked with some Stanford professors, I worked with some Harvard professors, and I found actually improv to be one of the best sources of human practice. How do you learn how to have better conversations? Sounds amazing. It really it's does. Really fun. Kind of, that kind of that idea of kind of uh, listening to to understand rather than to respond. Again, I as as a twin, you know, mm -hmm. I've always yes, I have twins. We discussed this earlier. I love your well, twin examples. Well, I've always listened. I, I remember when I, when we were growing up, you know, we and we would be having a ruckus on a regular basis, and mm -hmm. I would be, and I knew that we were both we we were both quite kind of good at arguing is a problem, yes. <laughs> uh, but we were both very bad at listening. So we were just fundamentally listening for our opportunity to jump in both yeah. feet first and hammer our point home, yeah. rather than actually kind of listening to what Sean was saying and him listening to what Kieran is saying, which would have undoubtedly shorten the conversation drastically yeah. not involved our poor mother in any way shape or form <laughs> that would have been loads easier so you know listening to understand it makes so much difference yeah you know there's a there's a simple technique when when i worked at, at apple steve jobs had a tendency to have strong opinions as you can imagine mm -hmm. and he realized at a certain point that if he didn't if he didn't switch roles with people people would just do what he said. And that wasn't what he wanted. When he was arguing, he wanted you to argue back with him. Yeah. And he would, he would do, if you were right, he would, he, would, uh, he would concede the point. But not everybody had the courage to do that with him. And so one of, the, one of the techniques he used was he just switched roles. He would switch roles with people. So for example, uh, the, there was a big debate at Apple about whether or not to launch uh, iTunes on the Windows platform. Mm -hmm. And Steve decided Steve didn't want to. And thank God he allowed himself to be overruled because otherwise we wouldn't have, we wouldn't have the iPhone, we wouldn't have the iPad, Apple Absolutely. would maybe not exist. Uh, so, so he would switch, he would go in and argue. These were like big company decisions and he would go in and argue with people. But then at a certain point when he saw them backing down, he would switch roles and he would argue for doing it and they would argue against it. So simple technique is just when people are fighting and you can see that ego has gotten involved, just switch roles. Was that deeply confusing to people for the first, the first time that they kind of in, in were part of that process? Did they know he was going to potentially do that or was that just something that he decided he was going to do? You know, I wasn't in the meeting, so I don't know for sure how people felt about it. Uh, but but what, what, what they said was it, it had become such a common thing that they, had, they grew to expect it. Uh, I, think, I think a lot of things were pretty surprising when you were working, when you were working on those teams. Uh, all, yeah. there, there was another, another person said that a summer intern was working on a sort of particular feature and, and came back from lunch one day and there was Steve sitting in his cube waiting to ask him a question about it. So I think you never knew what was going to happen moment to moment there. Which in itself is an incredibly powerful thing, isn't it? And I guess it kind of keeps everybody on their toes and keeps everybody kind of thinking about what's coming next. 
Yeah, and also as a reminder that what you do is important. And yeah, communication doesn't have to go through a hierarchy. If, if you're working on something and it's important and there's a question about it, Steve isn't going to ask your manager about it or your manager's manager about it. Steve's going to ask you about it. And that really drove a sense of accountability at the, at the company. Yeah, that's a really powerful part of the culture of the business, I guess, isn't it, to be fair, to know that he's, if, if he's wondering, he's going to come to you. Yes, uh, we've all been there. I don't, I don't know about you, but I've worked in businesses where the hierarchy is firmly in place, and yeah, you get kind of a question yeah. through three tiers. I'm like, come on. Yeah, it's like Just a game, a game of telephone, because uh, the information never gets transmitted correctly. Uh, so yeah. Okay. So when 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 I was looking on Twitter, obviously we kind of we we came onto this conversation because you were posting about the fact that. Obviously, kind of these the conversations that people are having right now are going to have an emotional toll. What do you think? What what is the best way of trying to manage that from your perspective? Because it's hard, you know. We've got managers, we've got business owners who are having to lay off uh, people who've maybe been with them their business for quite some time from day one, and they're having to go and either furlough them now, which is the best case scenario for a lot of people. But yeah. before our government and your government kind of stepped up and said we're going to give this uh, this support. You know, there was a lot of people who were absolutely kind of going through the mill and thinking, I'm going to be making people redundant in huge, huge numbers. I mean, yeah. in the industry in this country, so hospitality in this country is the third biggest industry, which I think is the same in the US. Same in the uh, US, yeah. yeah my my in brother country, works in hospitality and it's it's hard. It's, it's really tough. hard right now. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I mean, it's hard in, in financially and it's hard, it's hard emotionally. No getting around it at all. So how do you how would how do you how would you give them a bit of advice? What would you say to them? Look, this is this is a, a way of potentially getting through this and, and managing that situation. Yeah, I mean, I wish I had perfect, clear answers for people, and unfortunately, I have more compassion than I do answers. But I'll I'll share a couple of stories about times that I went through when when I, I had to do layoffs. So in two thousand and one, I was. I had started a software company in New York City, and we were selling to financial services companies, and a lot of our customers, in fact, were in the World Trade Center. And so after 9-11, uh, it was obviously a terrible time in many, many ways. Uh, I had lost someone, someone close to me. Pretty much everyone on the team was affected. And it was unclear what was going to happen next, whether the economy tanked. It was, so it was in, in many ways actually not, not nearly as scary as this situation, but it was still pretty damn scary for us. Um, our, our office was not that far from the Trade Center and we were in the close-off zone. And, and after about a week, I remember the sales leader asked me to come in and sort of rally the troops and make everybody feel better and inspire people and I walked into the meeting and I opened my mouth. I had all these planned remarks and I just burst into tears. <laughs> Didn't That was not what I was expecting to do. It was definitely not what they were expecting of me. And it was, it was, but it turned out to be one of the more powerful responses I could have made. So I would say if you're a leader in this situation, vulnerability is strength. And don't be afraid to show that you're hurting too. Now you probably, if you're the leader, you're not hurting as much as the people who you're laying off. Uh, definitely you're not hurting as much and you need to, to remain cognizant of that. But I think I had, my grandfather was a surgeon and I grew up in Memphis in, in the South in the US. And my grandfather, he was Irish though, from by, and he, when his patients hurt, when his patients were in pain after the surgery, he would cry. He would cry with them. And I've never, it was incredible. I couldn't go to the grocery store or anywhere in Memphis without somebody seeing my name and asking if I was kin to my grandfather. And it was very moving. So I think uh, don't, don't try to, one of the, so I said earlier, radical candor is about caring personally and challenging directly. And I think going back to this touchstone of caring personally, it's one of your jobs as a leader to care personally. 
And, but, but if you think about what moves us down on that dimension of radical candor, I mean, very few leaders start out their career saying, I don't give a crap about other people, so I'm gonna be a great leader. That's usually not how it works. I think part of the, I mean, part of the thing that moves us down on the care personally dimension is stress. And heaven knows we all have a lot of stress right now. But I think there's a more fundamental thing. And I think it happens uh, along around the time we're 18, 19, 20 years old. We get our first job and we're right at that moment in our lives when our egos are maximally fragile, but our personas are beginning to solidify. And right at that moment, someone comes along and says, be professional. And I think for an awful lot of people that gets translated to mean leave your emotions, leave your true identity, leave your humanity at home and show up at work like some kind of robot. And you can't possibly care personally, you can't possibly show compassion if you are turning up at work like some kind of robot. And so I think it's so important to remember in this time the humanity of others, but you can't connect with the humanity of others if you're not connected with your own humanity. So I think that's part of it. That's a big part of leadership in this time is that willingness to show compassion. But I, but I also think another part of it is truth. Love is not all you need. Unfortunately, the Beatles got that wrong. <laughs> truth is so important right now. I remember when I was same company during right after 9-11, it was, it was clear that we were going to have to do layoffs. Mm -hmm. And that was something I, I dreaded and everybody dreaded. And there was a lot of swirl around what it meant. And so I decided that we were going to get through this only if I was fully transparent about what I knew. I didn't know everything, but I did know a couple of things. I knew how much money we had and how much money we were spending. And I just shared that with the whole company. I was like, here's the financial situation. Here's what we are struggling with. And I'm open to ideas. And by doing that, people came up with clever ideas to, to reduce our spend. Uh, that, and we didn't, we, we didn't have to lay off quite as many people as, uh, as we otherwise would have. However, I, th I think there was something else that happened at that time that, that people could do now. Leaders could do it, but it doesn't take a leader to do it. Anyone on the team could do it. So after we did our first round of layoffs, there was, there was a guy on the team who was really upset that we had done this. And, I, you know, he was angry at me a little bit, uh, although he didn't have, he didn't have, he, he kind of agreed there was no alternative, but he was still angry at me. And so I said, well, what can we, what can I do to, to make it better? And he said, here's what I'm going to do. I don't know what you're going to do, but here's what I'm going to do. And he paid for drinks for everyone who had ever worked at the company, including everyone who had been, so we all got together. And obviously we can't go out for drinks right now, but you could, you could have a, a Zoom, you could do a virtual hangout yeah. with a lot of people. And I've, I've done this with a friend of mine uh, recently, uh, just just finished cancer treatment and had a, had a big, she was going to have a big party to celebrate. She couldn't have it. So we all got together over Zoom and it was a couple hundred people. And I didn't think, wow. it was actually one of, it was a, quite a nice cocktail party. <laughs> like it was kind of chaotic. <laughs> there was not one conversation, but like I saw a couple of people on the Zoom that I hadn't seen in, in, a, in a long time and we reconnected. So I think if we get creative about staying in touch with one another after the, because one of the things that we get from work is a, is a community. And just because we've had to do these we, redundancies, I think you call them layoffs, we call them here, but just because we're not working at the same place at the same time doesn't mean we can't still get together. We're all still human beings and we can create a community Absolutely. around that. So I was really grateful to this employee at, at the company who had the idea. I never would have had the courage to do that, to say, okay, I've just fired all you people. Now let's go after drinks together. Uh, 
but but he did it and I went and I was really glad that that he had done it and that I went. To make a world of difference, I think, kind of pulling them together at that point. And I think you're right. You know, you said we're all human beings. You know, it's kind of outside of work. We still have those connections. We still have those bonds. Um, and I think one of the things that people probably concern, get concerned most about when they lose a job is that all of those relationships will get cut off away from them. Yeah. Because uh, again, in most industries and certainly in hospitality, our social circles are built and driven through the people that we work with and that we work around on a, on a very regular basis. You know, I kind of, I look for my list of Facebook friends and it's pretty much people I've worked with over the years in some way, yeah. shape or form. And it's yeah. whether that's Bill over in uh, Phoenix in Arizona or whether it's Chris in Cardiff in Wales, that's because yeah. we've worked together and that's because we've got those relationships. And I think social media has helped people do that a little bit more now. Um, yeah. And hopefully kind of people are being quite creative with things like Zoom and saying, you know what, actually, we can do this. I mean, obviously, looking at Zoom's um, uh, value at the moment, which is going through the absolute roof, there's a lot of people who are thinking, yes, we're going to go on board with Zoom, which is, yeah. uh, it makes me sad that three, three, four weeks ago when I was first thinking about what this was going to look like, but I didn't buy shares. Um, yeah. I really should have made a choice on that one uh, yeah. because my partner, Chris and I, we've been thinking about kind of uh, C19 since early January, really, because we, we were due to have an event on the 18th of March so all of that thinking about what happens with that has been driven kind of, is it going to happen? Is it going to happen? Is it going to happen? And obviously yeah. kind of as time goes by, you know, it's not going to. So I think kind of finding a way to create and, and keep those emotional bonds and those kind of relationships beyond the kind of the office and beyond the restaurant uh, floor is absolutely key. No, so yeah. I, I really like that. Um, yeah. And I think it's really important to make sure that, I mean, tactical things you can do, like make sure everybody has everybody else's personal email address uh, so that you can't, I mean, I guess you can connect on Facebook, although I've gotten off, but, but, but there are other ways to do it. But I think making sure that there's a way for everybody to get in touch with everybody. Another very specific thing that we did was we created a, it was a Google document uh, with everybody's name, everybody's uh, email address, everybody's phone number, and also things you needed or things you could offer. So, okay. so, so for example, you know, people who are looking for a job said, I need, I need to know, I, I need an introduction to this person. And if everybody's going to that document every so often and you notice, or you're getting together every so often, even over Zoom or Google Hangouts or Facebook portal or whatever you decide to use, you'll have those kind of little conversations that you have at a cocktail party or at a bar or at a restaurant. And, and you can help each other. You can remember to help each other out. Um, so, so I think that is another really tactical thing you can do that, can create a sense of community even after even after layoffs. Yeah, I think I was chatting to a chap called Fergal Dooley, who's a consultant in uh, Washington DC, and he was talking about the fact that the the hospitality community there have a, uh, a Facebook group that has just over nine thousand members, um, and and it's very similar to that. It's a whole lot of people coming together to help. Um, I'm in need of this. I'm in need of that. Who can yeah. help me? I can help you do this. That's I mean, the, 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 again, I'm, I'm very biased towards my industry because I absolutely love it. But we are designed to care for each other. We're designed to care for people. That's why we're in this industry. So when yeah. people are putting that information up there and saying, I need this help, what can, can, anybody, can, can anybody sort of source it for me? Well, then, yeah, they're going to go ahead and kind of push it forward. And I love the idea of the kind of the Google Doc. Um, yeah. I need to, maybe I'll be more organized and I'll try and think about making something like that happen. You, you know, another thing that I was thinking about, and I would love to get maybe you or some people who are listening have an idea, but it's really, it's really great to donate to a bunch, there's a bunch of nonprofits that are springing up to help people, and, and I've, I've been trying to donate to those. But another thing I was thinking about, there was, um, I was reading a Twitter feed about, from a writer who had a relationship with the waitress, I mean, not a romantic relationship, mm -hmm. but he, he really uh, had gotten to know the waitress at the coffee shop where he went every, yep. every day. And she was in a world of hurt and he was able to help her. 
And I think like I would love to challenge every every single tech worker and everywhere. So you used to go to a restaurant, find the waiter at the restaurant who's probably not waiting and definitely not wait, and see if see what you can do to help them. Because a lot of the tech workers are able to work from home. And it feels so much better to reach out and connect with someone who you were connected with in the real world. Um, so I wonder if there's a way, because I was, I was trying to think, there's a restaurant, I, I have no idea how to get in touch with this waiter, but I want to make sure he's okay. Yeah. Uh, so, so let's try to figure out how we can, uh, how we can do that. I bet, I bet some folks at Google would build something if we could. I, I would imagine they probably are, somebody somewhere is thinking about it already. Yeah, they probably already. There is, um, in, in the UK, we have a, a charity called Hospitality Action, and they have set up, so you can donate to Hospitality Action, so you can donate to them as a main charity. Um, yeah. So it goes into the main fund, and they will support people in the industry who need a little bit of help and uh, extra kind of uh, care and attention to get through this or you can donate to specific areas. So they haven't got it down to restaurants yet, but uh, as I live in Nottingham and I, I spend a lot of time working in Liverpool, I mean, I, I travel the country a lot to be fair. So those areas where I would have been, and I know yeah. that kind of my money would be going into those pockets, I can yeah. say, right, so Manchester, I'm going to throw something into the Manchester part of Liverpool. I'm going yeah. to throw something to the Liverpool part of Nottingham. Yeah. I'm going to throw something to that part. And that will get then get distributed between the people in that area. The challenge yeah. is making sure those people know that that's available to them, to be fair. Yes, yeah. Those tech people could actually, as you say, they've all, we've all got those relationships with people in coffee shops and the restaurants where you go on a daily basis. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, because I think I feel, I feel so lucky that I'm able to work from home and I'd like to do more than just give money to nonprofits. I mean, there, there are people that I don't know how to find it's ironic. You think you know how to find everybody, and then you don't. Uh, it, uh, so, so I'd love to try, try to try to figure that out. Like, if you were a you know, if you're a waiter at this restaurant, you you know, and you used to go to this restaurant, how can you all reconnect? There's there's a way of doing that. Yeah, there's and a way I'm, of doing it. All right, let's that, think about it. Let's figure it out. That'll be our that'll be our action item at the end of this meeting that we've had. <laughs> That's that's now that's been that's been embedded in the unconscious mind to go and do its thing to try and work out a plan and, and see yeah. what we can do with that. Makes perfect yeah. sense. And my husband's so, an engineer, so we can get him to build it. <laughs> I mean, that sounds ideal. I mean, yeah, it really does. perfect. Got the skills, we've got the will. Really, yeah. we're onto we're onto a win there. Is this we're onto it? Now we just need to uh, flesh out the idea. Good. Yeah. Um, cool. So social distancing. I saw that um, you sort of said that um, when you're in the shops. Do you find yourself singing the police to yourself? Yeah, uh, <laughs> don't stand so made, close to me. Made me smile. It did make me smile. I think as as I've been walking my dog for the, the last sort of week and a half or so, um, for an hour a day, kind of uh, allowed exercise out of the house, uh -huh. we, we find ourselves kind of walking down the street and kind of seeing people and kind of clocking them from sort of 20 yards yeah. away and thinking, right, are they going to do the, the shimmy? Street. Am I going to yeah. do the shimmy? I mean, I've, I've literally just... 15 minutes before we started this call, I just got back from walking the dog and I've crossed the street at least 52 times, at yeah. least, which yeah. is good for the exercise. You know, I'm, I feel like I might be losing weight, which feels like a win. It's always good, yeah. At all. It's, it's gotta be. Um, but how would you, if, if, you're, if you're in that situation, I guess taking, going back to that kind of uh, caring person and kind of challenging directly, do you think yes. that's possible in that environment to kind of just give somebody a bit of guidance about kind of how they should be behaving? Do you think yes. you should be responsible for doing that? Yeah, so let's use, so when, when I came up with Radical Candor, I came up with a framework. And the framework is this, when you care personally, so imagine a big plus. So mm -hmm. when you care personally on the vertical axis, that's care personally, on the horizontal axis is challenge directly. So when you do both at the same time, it's Radical Candor. When you challenge directly, but you fail to show that you care personally, it's obnoxious aggression also known as the asshole quadrant. Uh, I'm guilty of that. <laughs> yes, so have I. We all have. We, and, and by the way, that's a really important point. We all make all these mistakes. These are not like labels. This is not personality types. These are mistakes that we make in conversation all day long. 
Now, very often when you realize, at least when I realize I've been a jerk, instead of moving the right direction on care personally, I just back off my challenge directly and I wind up in manipulative insincerity, like the worst <laughs> place of all. And, uh, but, but, and, and it's fun to tell stories about manipulative insincerity and obnoxious aggression because that's where sort of life's drama occurs. But that's most, where the laughs come from. Yeah, exactly. But the most common mistake that most of us make all of the time is what happens when we do remember to show that we care personally and we're so worried about not offending someone or not hurting someone's feelings that we fail to tell them something that we really ought to tell them. And that's ruinous empathy. So let's say you're taking your walk and somebody is walking too close to you. If you don't say anything and you allow them to walk too close to you, that is ruinous empathy right there. Because like, maybe you didn't offend them, but like maybe you're infecting them or they're infecting you. Like, are you really gonna risk contracting coronavirus because you don't want to offend someone? I hope not. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so that's ruin. And, and I have, uh, I wrote radical candor because I'm so guilty of ruinous empathy. Okay. So that was why I had, so, but, but one time, I'm not proud of this response, but one time I was on a walk with my children and it was kind of a narrow path. And there was somebody talking to somebody else on either side of the path. So there was no way for us to pass yeah. six feet apart. They needed to get on this. And rather than the radically candid thing to do would have been to say, excuse me, would you move over to that side so we can have six feet to pass, right? That, that's the radically candid way. Yeah. Instead, I was like, <laughs> <laughs> that's manipulative insincerity right there. Not setting a good example for my children. Uh, and I mean, you know, I was trying to make them laugh, but, uh, but anyway, still no excuse. I should, I should have done the radically candid thing. And of course, the obnoxiously aggressive thing to do is say, hey, asshole, you know, six feet. Haven't you are, you know, that's obnoxious aggression. So I genuinely did that yesterday. Yeah, I, I have. I've been guilty of that. <laughs> I was talking to my cousin the other day and she said, you know, I just I did the obnoxiously aggressive thing. The person was like getting close and I asked them once to back off and they, they did. They got too close again. And I just looked at them and I said, you are the worst. <laughs> um, it's a big statement. <laughs> it is a big statement. <laughs> big statement. So I think it's I think it's really important in these times to remember there is, yes there is a radically candid way to ask someone to to back off. First of all, wave and smile. I mean like mm -hmm. like look the person in the eye and smile. Like be do something friendly and then say I really I need my 6 feet and you need your 6 feet. So let's stay 6 feet apart. So there's a there is a there is a kind and clear way to remind people to stay six feet apart because sometimes, like in the grocery store, what was happening was people were getting engrossed in looking for whatever pasta they were looking for, and they just weren't they weren't situationally aware. They didn't realize they were encroaching yeah. on on my space. And I think that's the thing is that sometimes we kind of we it's it's easy to make an assumption that somebody is choosing to do that yeah. rather than yeah. it's just. It's, it's it's not a deliberate action. It is just an accident. And if somebody yeah. highlighted it to them, then they would just take a little step back and go, "Really, my apologies." You know, yeah. kind of. Yeah. So it, well, it, it and, is. And, and then occasionally you get the person who thinks this is all a big overreaction. Yes. Uh, and so I dealt with one of those people recently, where they they were they were like getting close. I was like, "Could you please keep your distance, six feet?" And they're like, "Oh, this is just a bunch of hooey." And I said, "Look." You can believe what you want to believe, but you are causing me fear mm -hmm. to get close. Keep your distance for that reason. I'm not telling you what you have to believe, but you're causing me fear by getting too close. So I think another, another way to think about this is sort of what's, the, what's going on with the person who's getting too close to you? Are they just unaware? And if they're just unaware, sort of an I statement is useful. Hey, I, you know, I, I, when you get so close, I, I don't, you know, I don't like it. 
So you're inviting them to see the situation from your point of view. Sometimes people have a different belief than you do, right? So they actually don't believe that coronavirus is a big deal and they don't believe in the responses and there's plenty of those people out there. And so then you need sort of an it statement, like it is the law right now that you, you know, and, and, and usually people will, will fall in line with that, usually. And then sometimes people are just trying to bully you for, some, for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. And then you need a you statement. Like you, you know, you're, you're pushing them away with a you statement. So sometimes that's a helpful way to look at it as well. Nice. I know when I when I've talked about this, um, when, I, when I'm delivering leadership sessions and I've, I've talked about the concept of Anukakanda, you know, the, the, the first kind of impression for some people is, is it's aggressive, it is uh, unfriendly and combative. Um, and it's quite amazing how, I guess, we're, there's folks I know pre-declined, pre uh, determined to kind of look and see the negative side of it rather than just thinking, actually, you know what, this is based in kindness for you and based in kindness for me. So I'm yeah. now, if you're not going to take care of your own health, and that's, if, if you've got the person who is, I don't believe in this, it's absolute make-believe, uh, it's, I mean, there are some very, very random theories out on the internet, right? Yes, now. there are. What's the cause of this? I mean, I, I love the internet, but it's a <laughs> rabbit hole that you could take yourself down and find yeah. some really kind of strange ideas. You know? Yeah. As you say, if that's your deal, if that's what you choose to believe, that's cool. I'm not going to tell you that's right or wrong. I'm just going to say for me and for us right here and right now, I'm going to try and do the best we possibly can do to protect us because yeah. I think certainly culturally with then we all have that responsibility to kind of take care of one another right now and if yes. somebody's going to choose to behave in a slightly random way so the man yesterday that i got into the obnoxious obnoxious aggression with he was clearly he just he, he looked us and he saw us from about 30 feet away and we were kind of our body language was very clear that we were going to try and step out of the way and he actually veered to kind of to walk towards her. oh like, my gosh Dude, I mean, come on. My wife is, my wife, she's much nicer than me most of the time, if I'm honest with you. And she's like, no, it's fine, Kieran. We're just, you know, I'm like, he's been an imbecile now. You know, he's doing Yeah, he's being an asshole. Yeah, and I just, I, I feel like I want to tell him that that's what he's doing. This is how he's now making me feel that he's been an absolute complete dick. And yeah. she's like, really, Kieran, do we need to get into that? I'm like, I feel like I need to, my sweet. Yes, I feel like I need to. <laughs> I didn't mean to. I just wanted to. No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just yeah. wanted to because it would make me feel better there. And then I guess you understand. Yeah. Kind of taking that away from it and just actually just, as you say, upfront, honest, this is this is what's good for us both now. So let's do yeah. this now. And yeah. end that conversation and move along. Because all I did really was extend the kind of the, the 15 seconds that he was going to walk past me into being a 30 second engagement. So I yeah. made my own life hard. So yeah. it's about making those simple, smart decisions that don't make you don't cause yourself much more pain than is necessary. I guess is would be yeah. the way to go. Yeah, I mean, I think if 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 there's somebody who clearly and aggressively doesn't, you know, is is trying to violate the norms that we as a society are setting for ourselves right now, I think you you want to for the vast majority of people, you just want to limit their ability to impose their their beliefs on you. Now, we all probably have someone who we love in our families who we actually need to discuss this stuff with. But the random, the random guy on the street, you don't need to change his beliefs. You just need to not let him impose his beliefs on you. Exactly that. And I guess that comes back to that, uh, that simple decision. Am I going to respond or am I going to react? You know, if yeah. I'm going to choose to react, it's going to come from the irritated, angry place because um, my life is being disturbed right now and it's been... The yeah. stuff that I enjoyed, so I'm not being allowed to do, and I'm trying to be as cool with everybody else around me because everybody else is feeling the pain. But now I'm going to choose to react. The yes. response would just be, "You're an imbecile." I'm going to keep yeah. on walking and minimize damage. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Now that that does make perfect sense, and I'll be honest, Mum, I'm, I'm very lucky uh, with my wife. She kind of uh, she will take the time to kind of say, "Kieran, really, was that the thing to do?" <laughs> <laughs> and she does it in a way that doesn't not make me want to cause her pain. So that's always a yeah, good thing as well. That's good. That's a very good. It's good. It's a good thing to be sheltering in place with someone like that. I want to come. I want to come back to something you said a moment ago. That what because there is a very common misperception of radical candor. In fact, mm -hmm. we we published a second edition of the book for this very reason because a lot of people were using radical candor as an excuse to act like a jerk. Mm -hmm. uh, they they were confusing. 
yes, they, they were confusing radical candor with obnoxious aggression. And so in the second edition of the book, I offer an alternative. If, if you feel like that's happening in your organization, you can call it compassionate candor to, to mm -hmm. sort of zero in. The reason why I called it radical candor in the first place is because it's so rare. It, it, it's like, as we were talking before, radical candor is really kind of common sense. It's not, it's not love and truth are not new ideas in the world. Mm. But, but it is rare. We, we tend to think that we can either show compassion or be honest. And the truth is that you got to do both, that that's a false dichotomy. And so that's the idea of radical candor. So if compassionate candor works better, use that by all means. Cool. So I guess uh, I, I touched on obviously being on lockdown, you know, and kind of we're all locked down with various different people in our families. I, I am very lucky, you know, my wife is, uh, she's pretty cool, I have to say. So um, I, I feel you like- married her for a reason. I made a smart choice 26 years ago, absolutely. <laughs> that was a good, that was probably one of my better decisions. So I've, I feel quite lucky, you know, we've, we've been through this kind of, we, we've been through history in the past where we haven't communicated as clearly and as well as we should do and could do that we used to argue quite a bit. And we both took a sort of step back and looked at that and thought, what, what is the benefit of this? And yeah. we were able to really kind of reduce that right down to a much more sensible level where we were just having honest conversations about how we, we would make each other feel. We still kind of snipe every now and again, you know, you kind of yeah. live 26 years with somebody. Yeah, you know, 26 years with somebody and there's going to be some sniping at some point, isn't there? It's a simple answer. But for those people who maybe haven't, been lucky enough to get there kind of lockdown potentially could be a really stressful situation i think yeah yeah what, what, what do you reckon so i think a few things that i actually i haven't written this but one of the things i'd like to write at some point is the house of radical candor about how you can use these ideas not only at work but but at home as well yeah. because it is really about relationships. It's a radical canter is about communication and relationships. And so I have a few suggestions for those of you who are are sheltering in place with someone who's who where, where the relationship is difficult. Uh, one thing one thing I would one thing I would suggest a friend of mine when she got married, her god her godfather said there's, she got married on this little island and it had very fragile septic tanks. And so there were signs over every toilet that said, if it's yellow, let it mellow. If it's brown, flush it down. It's a good and rolling line. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And her godfather said, these are words to stay married by. And so the, the idea is if it's a big deal, have the, have the argument, have the argument. If it's not a big deal, let it go. So if it's about like one of the one of the disagreements my husband and I have is when you're when you're soft boiling and when you're hard boiling an egg, should you put it in when the water is boiling or should you put it in when the water is cold? It's not an important. It, there's pros and cons. If you put it in when when the water is cold, the egg is less likely to crack. But if you put it in when the water is hot, it's easier to peel the egg. So that, just a little tip for you for hard boiled eggs. And so, but so when I make the eggs, I do it my way. And when he makes the eggs, he does it his way. And we, but at first we kept trying to convince the other and we're like, what difference does it make? Um, so that was an, that's an example of if it's yellow, let it mellow. Um, but, but more important, more important decisions, we actually will take the time to have the discussion. I think, there's one thing, there's one really important thing that is true at work, and it, it's probably even more true at home than it is at work, which is if you, so there's an order of operations to radical candor. And the first thing you should do is not give criticism. The first thing to do is to solicit criticism. Don't dish it out before you prove you can take it. And I think in a relationship, that's really important. It's so important to understand what you know what you can do or stop doing that would make it easier to live with you so like that's a question to ask one another is what could i do or stop doing that would make it easier to live with me and and ask it on kind of a regular basis because you're doing something new uh every day especially in this environment which is 
which is creating new unexpected challenges for all of us. So, so make sure you ask that question. And um, it's really important. So what if the person tells you about something that you, you disagree that what they're criticizing you for is a, is a problem? You're not going to change that thing. Whatever it is, you're not going to change it. Uh, so the worst thing you can do in that situation is just say, thank you for the feedback and keep doing the thing, right? Because the, the ignoring something like that is, is never going to make the situation better. So what you do, what do you do when you ask for criticism and you disagree with the criticism? First of all, look for that five or 10% and what the person said that you can agree with just to demonstrate that you're not shut down to feedback from them. So, uh, so, so if the person, if, if the person you're living with wants you to do the sheets every single day to wash the sheets every single day, and you're a person who prefers to wash the sheets twice a week, mm -hmm. uh, so, or once a week or once every two weeks, whatever it is, uh, you've got to, you got to come up with a, with a solution, right? So, so find, if, if you say, look, I like to live in a clean environment, like I agree with you, I want a clean environment. Like if, if, you, can, if you can just agree on that general principle, mm -hmm. then it shows you're, you're open to it and you're on the same page. But as for washing the sheets every single day, I need to think about it and get back to you. And the reason to think about it is to get yourself to a place when you have this disagreement that you're not super angry and defensive. And then, and then you must get back to the person. And have a disagreement, have the disagreement. Disagreements, when you have them well, can deepen and strengthen a relationship. But ignoring what the other person is telling you is infuriating and has never improved any relationship ever. So, so that's, that's one suggestion I have. I also think that, so order of operation number one, solicit feedback. Thing number two, the second thing to do, and this is not like some kind of Six Sigma complicated process. This is stuff you do in, in your daily minute-to-minute -minute interactions. But focus on the good stuff. Like you, you are with, you are living with this person for a reason. There's something you appreciate about the person. Get back to that thing and give voice to it and look for the good stuff. Focus on the good stuff. Try to focus on the good stuff. And don't ignore the bad stuff. So when something happens that really bothers you, give voice to it. But it should be, this should not, all these conversations, they shouldn't feel like root canals. It should be like a yeah. quick two-minute conversation. And say it right away, but say it humbly and say it in the, remind the person that you're saying this to be helpful to the relationship, which you both mm -hmm. care about. There was a, a guy told me that he got married and shortly after he noticed that his wife clinked the spoon on her teeth when they ate their cereal in the morning and it bugged him. It bugged him, but he didn't want to be petty. He didn't want to have a fight with his new wife. And so he didn't say anything. And this went on and it bothered him more and more and more, this clinking of the... Yeah spoon on the teeth. And like five years later, she clinked her spoon on her teeth a final time. He's like, I need a divorce. Uh, obviously, there were other things going on in the relationship. But, but if there's something, even if it's a small thing that really bothers you, just tell the person, <laughs> just tell the person. She could have avoided clinking the spoon on her teeth. Well, that's the key, isn't it? And, and, and again, you know, kind of when I think that's kind of when we were younger, you know, we, we, we didn't do that. We didn't just, yeah. we didn't have regular conversations. We didn't just tell each other what was, what was infuriating that day. We didn't say, though, you know what, if you didn't do that, this situation would be better. We would just do, let it build up and build up and build up. And then you explode and it goes a hundred miles an hour and it's all emotion and it's all anger and it's all yeah. unhappiness rather than actually, well, I'm just going to have an honest conversation with you and just say, is there a way of us not doing this? Is there a way of making us being able to avoid this happening? Um, yeah. And it's funny that you kind of, you mentioned the spoon clicking on the teeth. My twin brother very much hated that about me when we were growing up. 
And, you know, you, you talked about your daughter being quite smart in the way she worked. I used to do it on purpose to really yeah. grate on his nerves. Yeah. Very petty, yeah. very petty, but uh, <laughs> we've all but been very there. human, very human. Exactly, exactly that. And that's the, that's the key of this, isn't it? You know, we all share behaviours and we all share kind of traits that yeah. every one of us is guilty of at some point or the other, recognising yeah. that actually that that person is not probably more often than not, not trying to infuriate, not trying to anger you, you know, yeah. maybe every now and again, but as a rule yeah. of thumb, that's not what they're looking for because no one benefits from that. Yeah. Well, then just tell them honestly. And hopefully at that point, then you can find a, a resolution through it. Yeah. Just makes perfect sense. Yeah. So I was chatting with um, chatting with one of my mentees um, over the last couple of days. Uh, his name's Raf Barron. Um, he's a he's a cracking fella, and he's mm-hmm. I've, he's worked with me over probably thirteen years in different jobs. I uh, started off kind of uh, behind the cook line, and we worked at Hard Rock together, mm-hmm. uh, and it's just progressed and kind of gone away and come back at different points. And now he's at a point where he's kind of he's actually launched his own business as a feedback coach which is amazing mm-hmm. um it's great and it's, it's it's wonderful and i said to him I, he was the first person i gifted your book to because i just knew that he would love it and uh so i said to him this morning ref do you have a question that you would like me to ask him that would that would work for you and he was like, mm-hmm. Dang, that's, a, that's a big opportunity there kieran and he's a real thinker <laughs> i'll be honest with you i'm gonna have to go away and reflect on this for you um, now, being a better, if I had been a better person, I would have said it to him yesterday. So he would have had more time to reflect on it. But uh, I'm very much a live in the moment kind of fella, which right. is infuriating sometimes for the folks around me. So I said to him, "No, take take some time. You know, it's not until this afternoon. Just just let me know." And he came back and he said he he, he wanted to think about kind of um, he's he works with uh, people early in their development as managers. So mm-hmm. his question was, um, "What advice would you give to a junior manager?" who's very much at the start of their journey to be able to embrace the kind of the concept of radical candor, because from his experience and, you know, from my experience, a lot of those junior managers who are kind of very, very new to the kind of the role are very uncomfortable with the idea of actually challenging, you know, and, yes. and, and having that conversation. So they kind of, they kind of step back and they step away and hopefully they kind of, they, they stay away from kind of the uh, ruinous empathy that they'll quite happily get there sometimes without even trying. So what yeah. advice would you would you be able to give them to kind of say, you know what, I'm going to get past this? Yeah, so a, a couple of things. One is being a new manager for a lot of people is very uncomfortable. I know that for me, the first time I became a manager, I had the following sort of conversation with a friend of mine. My friend said, Kim, you hate the man, and now you are the man. And you're a woman. It's even more complicated. <laughs> And, and so, so I think that, that a lot of people are uncomfortable with authority. A lot of us come to management with sort of unresolved ish, authority issues. So, so I think the, the more you can do to lay those down and to remember that you are going to get things done by having relationships with people. You're not going to get things done through command and control you're not going to get things done by being loved and you're not going to get things done by being hated. You're going to get things done by, by challenging directly and caring personally at the same time. So, so I think that uh, another thing that happened to me early in my career as a manager is that I got an article emailed to me, the same article emailed to me by 10 people on my team. And the article was about how people would rather have a boss who's a total asshole, but really competent than one who's really nice, but incompetent. And I thought, are they sending me this because they think I'm an asshole or because they think I'm incompetent? Surely those are not my two choices. So I have a lot of empathy for being a new manager. It's a very, it's a deeply uncomfortable situation for a lot of people. I think one of the things that you can do as a new manager that will help you more than anything else is to think of a moment in your life when someone gave you some criticism that maybe stung a bit in the moment, but that stood you in good stead for the next decade of your life. Maybe mm-hmm. it was a teacher, maybe it was a grandparent, maybe it was maybe it was a parent, maybe it was just a friend. But when if, if you tell yourself the story about the moment when someone said something and it was hard to hear, 
but it was very helpful to hear. Then you can then you can begin to offer this kind of feedback, not in uh, arrogant "I'm better than you" kind of way, but in a, "I want this is a gift," and I, and I'm giving you this gift, and it's a gift in one of two ways. It's either a gift because I'm correct in my assessment, and only by telling you this about this problem can you fix it, or it's a gift because I'm incorrect in my assessment, but only if I share with you my assessment, can you change my mind? So you wanna go into these conversations being very humble, uh, expressing your intention to be helpful and channeling whoever it was who told you the thing that really helped you. Mm -hmm. So tell yourself a story. In, in Radical Candor, I tell a story about a time when my boss told me I sounded stupid because I said um, every third word, which was hard to hear. It was hard to hear in the moment, but if she hadn't said it to me just that way, I wouldn't have gone to see the speech coach and I wouldn't have fixed the problem. Absolutely. I think you'll really appreciate that. Um, and I know he was, uh, he was very excited when I told him you were gonna come on and talk, so. Uh, well, tell him, be, uh, thank, thank you for the radical candor enthusiasm. I really appreciate it. Makes four yes. long, lonely years of writing the book useful. Helpful. Well, to write it. Yeah, I thought I could write it in three months and it took four years. <laughs> so it was, <laughs> it's it a real gap there. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. They, I was wrong in my assessment. What was that process like for you? So this is now just me being interested in this. That uh, writing well, process. Yeah, I've, I have written, before I wrote this book, I wrote three novels that never got published. Mm -hmm. So I love writing. So for me, the four years was a pleasure. It was not like some terrible burden. But, it, but I did, you know, I certainly had a lot of moments in that four years where I wondered, what am I doing? And, and the, at one point when I was coming up with the radical candor framework and coming up with the words radical candor and obnoxious aggression and manipulative insincerity, I, I spent several weeks just iterating on that, coming up with different mm -hmm. words and different, my, my husband looked at me at one point, he was like, I could come up with a random word generator that would... <laughs> Uh, do that. Yeah, but it, but it wouldn't come up with the right answer. You know, I actually have to struggle with it. So it does, writing is a, uh, it's, it is, it's something I think you do only because you really enjoy doing it because it was so, it was uncertain whether I would ever, I'd written three other books that never sold a single cop. Well, they sold a few copies. I self-published mm -hmm. them on Amazon, but they sold very few copies. Uh, and it takes a long time. You know, I had a, I walked away from, from a, a job in tech uh, in order to write it. So it felt sort of financially irrational, but, but I'm glad I did it. I love doing it. What drove you to do that? Uh, there, you know, as with all career changes, I think I was moving towards something and away from something. So the thing I was moving towards was writing. In many ways, my whole career in business was an effort to subsidize my novel writing habit. <laughs> so I, had, I, I loved to write. I loved doing the work I was doing. So that was, that was the positive thing. And I think that I had, uh, I had had a couple of bad experiences in my previous, I'm writing about them in my next book. Uh, and so I just decided, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to work in these kinds of environments anymore. I'm going to go do my own thing now. I'm really glad you did. Yes, um, so am I. So am I. I could not be happier uh, with the choice, although it did seem, as I was writing the book, a little crazy at times. And the next book, you're working on that now? Yes, the next book is called Just Work, and it's about how to eliminate gender injustice in the workplace. Okay. That's a yeah. big subject and a big yeah, challenge. There's no getting around that <laughs> at all. Yes, yeah. It, that, that book has been really, really interesting to write, uh, but, but much harder to write, actually, even than Radical Candor was. Well, I look forward to reading it. There's no getting around that. Um, well, thank it you. It feels like it's going to be an absolute win. Thank you so much for your time today. I've absolutely thank you. appreciated it. Just incredibly kind of you to take time out and do that. I very much will be keeping an eye out for the second book. There's no getting around that. Where, um, if, if our listeners are kind of thinking, right, she's pretty cool, I like her, which I'm no doubt they will be, where can they find out about you? Where, where can they kind of get on board with what, uh, what you're putting out there into the ether? Sure. So RadicalCandor.com is the website. And then the website for the, for the sort of 
improvising radical candor for the for the office place comedy is improvisingradicalcandor.com. And you can follow me uh, at candor on Twitter. Amazing. And I would absolutely recommend that people do. Thank you, right for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, really have appreciated it. And uh, yeah, like I say, very much look forward to the book coming out. Well, thank you so much. And, and I hope everybody out there stays safe and, uh, and, and is okay. Uh, please do reach out if there's, anything, if there's anything my team or I can do to support you, because I know it's rough times for folks. Wow. How cool was that? I was a bit, I'll, I'll be honest, I was fanboying a little bit, if I'm honest with you. Radical Candor is an amazing book, and the concept of just be kind and be clear, of care personally, and just ch challenge directly, that is how I've lived my life. It's, it's a massive key for me. So when I first read that book, and it just all made sense, and it can, I connected with it in a big way, and I really hope that you did too. I would say, maybe go back and have another second listen, get your notebook, get a notepad out, and think about what she said. She's given us some tools to be able to get through this situation with our family, get through this situation with our teams, get through this situation with some random stranger in the streets. All really useful stuff. Thank you very much for Kim. I really appreciate her time. And fingers crossed at some point, we'll get to do something like this again. We need more help, call the whole town. Now let's try and get this thing off the ground. ground. All in together, let's gather round. We're going to try and get this thing off the ground. Yeah.